0: The following is an exclusive Disruption Network production.
1: In the heart of East Utica lies Joey's at 307. That's 307 Mohawk Street. It's where the eclectic old school meets the new school cuisine. Dine in and enjoy some amazing seafood dishes, classic Utica Italian dishes, lunch specials, a revolving dinner menu, and even offering catering. Call them at 315-864-3527. Joey's at 307. You're going to love it.
0: The following program contains explicit content. Listener's discretion is advised. Donato Nappi was a name that was synonymous with organized crime in upstate New York throughout the 1970s and 80s. All of the stories told on this podcast are based on FBI files requested through the Freedom of Information Act. Danny prides himself as an honorable man, one who never ratted, never cried, and did his time. He was never comfortable talking about his life until now. We start the story from his beginning. Who is Donato Nappy?
2: My father came from Italy in 1910. His uncle, Donato Nappy, who was my great uncle, who I'm named after, was already here uh, living on Marbury Street in New York City. It was Uncle Dan. He had a cafe, 151 Marbury Street, named Bellinopoly. We're all, that we're Nubbley Dons. There was a lot of nobbly Dons at that time in Mulberry Street. And my family is nobbly Don. I got to say, in the mid-1920s, my uncle was an originator of San Gennaro. And it started with, he had two or three other friends that owned coffee shops around Mulberry Street. In
0: 1928, three Italian-American businessmen, Donato Nappi, Michael Montanini, and Alex Tisi, Founded the Society of San Gennaro Incorporated. Each of them owned a cafe on Mulberry Street in Little
2: Italy. And they got together, and it didn't start out as a feast. And it's uh, on their date that they uh, proposed the San Gennaro, They used to bring their wares out. Cooked my 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 uh, uncle Dan, as I say, it was a pastry shop, Cafe Napoli. He was he was a master baker. And they would bring out cookies for the for, for the people around the neighborhood. It became the San Janao Street. From the little stands in front of their businesses, it eventually closed the whole block down and became a San Janao yeah. feast. As my father moved upstate and I was born, I remember as a little boy going to that feast. 1945, 46. it was a feast. The feast was beautiful, it was genuine. It was all Italian people down, down Marbury Street. It was nice. There was no fucking stands trying to bullshit you out of playing darts and breaking fucking balloons and this and that. That wasn't for what the feast was all about. It was for San Gennaro. He's the Patriot Saint of Naples, San Gennaro. Now there's an Italian pastry, it's called Spugnatello. It's Napolitano, it's Naples. There is an Italian pastry shop here in Utica called Caruso's. The originator of Caruso's, his name is Carmen Caruso. He went to my Uncle Donato in Mulberry Street to train to learn how to really make the (laughs) Spuyadell. This picture, if you go in Caruso's now, you'll see the pictures of Uncle Dan's old place. That was a well-known pastry shop. The guy was well-known.
0: Spuyadell, small, thin-leafed layer, shell-shaped Italian pastry also known as a lobster tail.
2: During the time Uncle Dan had a cafe, we're talking about, what did the guy say, from 1920 to 1928? Then he had it all the way up to 1960, or somewhere around there. My father told me these stories. Uncle Dan used to have a card game in, back of, in the back of that joint, where people like Lucky Luciano, Vito Genovese, Genovese were supposed to be related, the distant cousin. My father tells me these stories. All the originator of the fucking mafia in the United States used to go to that cafe. I don't think he was a wise guy. He had to be well-known. He had to be well-known well down there. He had that place a long time. Me and my brother, when we were young, Dad used to tell us stories about Balber Street and what he did and that. And we used to go like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as we got older, this guy never fucking lied. Everything he said was the truth. But I feel if I mention all that, then right away it goes, yeah, this guy's going back to Lucky Luciano. Who the fuck he is? He wasn't even born then and all that. That's what I'm thinking if I mention that. My father was a prince. He was a good guy. Worked all his life. He had his little recreation at night. He used to go play pinacle, Not for money, but the old-time Italian guys he used to go to the joints and play. He was married to this woman. She passed away. He had two kids with her, and then he moved up here to the camp. Uncle Dan was very strong. He had a lot of money back in the day. Now, what he does is he wants to buy a camp up in their old forge in Forestport years ago. He was going to buy it for us up here. What happened Why he changed his mind? His first wife's sister started a lot of shit with my mother. Married to my father now, saying, No, that should be, we should be involved in that. Why should he hit buy it and leave it to you? And he got pissed off, he didn't buy it. Utica, New York,
0: located in the Mohawk Valley region of upstate central New York, widely known as the original Sin
2: City. I can remember the bullshit that went on at, on Bleecker Street. In other words, when I was a little boy, I would sneak out of the apartment. They didn't know. The old yeah. man was playing pinoch or something. Yeah. The old lady was sleeping. I used to go on to Bleaker Street as a kid, and I could tell you about whorehouses, crack games, the whole fucking town was running. Uh, see, I lived on 3rd Ave between Elizabeth and Mary, uh, Mary Street. Bleaker Street was one street down. It was wide open. You know, As I got older, as a teen, then I heard about the whorehouses. Not that I never went to a whorehouse, but I heard guys that would go to the whorehouses. The town was wide open then. Then I didn't do good in school. I only went to the seventh grade and I quit seventh grade. And a lot of lot of people in, in my year at that time quit seven, They were sixteen in the seventh grade. They they quit. And I joined the Marine Corps young. I remember my mother had the sign. I was seventeen when I joined. I actually, I I actually served two, three, two and a half. Two and a half. I went in as a reserve. Went to boot camp six months. Then I got out. I was uh, outside of Syracuse. There's a reserve, Marine Corps Reserve Center there. Can't think of the name of the thing. Anyway, I had to go back. You know, I had to go at a once a month report, and I didn't like it there. And I got in the beef with, the. He was a sergeant. I told him I didn't like it. He said, well, then we'll put you back in the Marine Corps two years. It was like being drafted. I said, do what you got to do. I don't like it here. That's when I went 1961 to 1963, active duty. I ended up on Okinawa then. Came back out with an honorable discharge. I'm very proud of that honorable. I think it's the only thing, good thing I've done in my life. And I ended up getting a high school diploma. I'm very proud of that, GED. But I got that through the veterans. Anybody who left school, will give you an example. During Second World War, Korean War, and then they made it to the Vietnam Era War. It went into the military. They were entitled to a, a, a high school diploma. I didn't even have to take a test. I just wrote, Proctor High School, and they sent me a diploma. So that was a, an accomplishment, uh, 63. Yep, fooled around, that's where my criminal life started. From 63, from 67, 66, 67, back and forth to Miami. You know, I had connections in Miami. I fooled around in Miami a lot. Met a lot of guys in Miami at that era. There was a lot of guys. And, uh, did things down there too, Miami. It was a thing, like anybody who was a thief or car nutters, counterfeit guy, anybody, everybody was in Miami making money down there at that time. And then there was mob crews down there. It was Miami was like a, uh, open territory. Any family could go down there and do what they had to do, you know. It was, uh, then, uh... I lived in Atlantic City, went to uh, Vegas. I've been all of that. I lived in Montreal, 1963, right after I got out of the Marines. I wasn't involved. I just took off, went to Vegas. A friend of mine from Utica was there. He became a pit boss. From what I understand now, that the guy did very, very well. He ends up. I think he's got a piece of a hotel or his own place down there now. He became very well. His brother-in-law had just became a fireman in Las Vegas. I said, Danny, why don't you take the test to be a fireman in Las Vegas, right? And I said, Jeez, I didn't have my high school diploma. You see, those are one of the things my life could have turned around in the right direction because if I had the high school diploma and took the test, I may have become a fireman and my life would have went in that direction. You remember I, I'm from a legitimate family. So I had this money. Even back it was in the mid mid to late sixties. At that time I wanted to buy Houses, fix them up a little bit and rent them. But I couldn't show, I couldn't do it. Neither one of my brothers wanted to get involved. I'd, you know, go up front for me, I'll give it on money, you buy it, you can show it. Never, it never panned out, it just fucking never panned out. How did you
0: get involved as
2: a young street guy? When I was in Marines, I was impressed with GQ clothes. Young guy, you want to be shocked, right? There were Hong Kong tailors that came on Okinawa and they could make you a suit for 40 bucks. So I saved a lot of money. I had maybe six, seven suits made, a few board jackets, a little time while I was over there. They were nice suits. But now I get home, can't get a job. I didn't have a high school education. I did have experience with track vehicles, tanks, but I didn't have juice. I was a kid, 21 years old. Maybe even take a job with a bulldozer somewhere like the city, dump or something, get a job. So I said, ain't nobody going to fucking hire me every time. I Look, nobody's going to help you. nobody did help me. I was a kid. I like the better things in life. And without an education, I couldn't earn no money. Mm-hmm. So I had to start doing what I had to do, you know. And one thing led to another, led to another, and then you get involved, you know. People see you as you come up, and they take an interest in you because you're making money. Making money. And, uh, and that's how you get involved with other things. Anyway, I had a friend. He used to fix races. And one of the racetracks that he fixed was Providence, Lincoln Downs. We used to go there. Early in the morning when the jockeys are out exercising the horses, he'd pull up the car on the exercise. While they're pulling, the jockeys used to see Augie ride the horses right to his car. What are we going to do today? What are we going to do today? What they used to do is he'd pay certain jockeys if, you wouldn't even know. We wanted you to go, we wanted you to win. Certain jockeys we'd pay to hold their horses back while the race was on. Then, instead of betting on the racetrack after, you know, while the horses are going, before the race, we wouldn't bet a lot on the racetrack because there would be the ads. People would see that, hey, the ads are going for this horse. So we bet with bookmakers, well, on the East Coast, Buffalo, New York, whatever you had to bet. In the meantime, the race would go off. Sure enough, the guy we wanted to go, the jockey we wanted to go, he won the race. He didn't even know he was going to win the race. Now, I'm saying this because ever since then, you know when you go to a racetrack, they got programs and you handicap the programs, who you want and who you don't want. Since then, I never bet horses anyway, because we used to go to the track while the the race is going. You know, we know what's what's happening. And I used to watch these people get a program, and you see them try to handicap like, yeah, this horse, this horse good on a wet track, this horse, all the bullshit, right? And I'm saying to myself, we got this fucking race fixed. And these people are actually, you know, going through the fucking motions. Anyway, this guy, he, he was a genius. He was a genius at doing that. Grand Larcy's my first pinch it was checks. That's when I went where the first time. I pled guilty to that. Ad. I got a 5 to 10 years suspended sentence probation. Actually, I violated probation. Went back to court. They cut it from a 5 to 10 to a 2 to 4. That was my first bid when I went away 2 to 4. And, then, and let's put this on the record. This is the first time I ever told anybody about this story. I ended up going to Attica 2 to 4. This is 1967. I think I was there about six months or so, and I get called down uh, to the visiting room. The FBI wanted to talk to me. There was a burglary on Griffiths Air Force Base at that time, somewhere in 1967, and uh, my name was involved. They went on the base, and they burglarized the PX. How my name was involved, I don't know. So they asked me some questions, and I said, I won't answer the questions. I have a lawyer in Utica, and that was the end. They had to stop these are on my fbi files there was probably one or two guys who were involved in that play, that burglary up there and how how my name got in uh, uh, mentioned I don't know. It could be I was active in those days, and whoever got involved, for your, let's so Danny happened there, and uh, maybe we can get off. He's already in prison anyway. It's a lost cause. The investigation went on pretty, pretty uh, for a long time. I, they had names because somebody was telling them, trying to get me involved. They, so they had names. But in my uh, case, they had no physical evidence. So there was a safe that was open, and they had no fingerprints, and they had no uh, no physical evidence. So they, had, they couldn't or didn't at the time try anybody. I don't think anybody got in trial. That would have been a big thing because uh, at that time, that was Griffiths Air Force Base was the home of SAC. Now, this is a coincidence. In my FBI reports, again, there used to be an old-time safe cracker. His name was Funzie Dote, old-time guy. He's dead now. He's Jesus. If he was alive, he'd be 110. He had the time, Fungy. And at this time, again, 1967, he was clean. He was living a good life. And guess what happened on the, on the FBI report? Just so happened he had a small garbage truck, and he went on base that night, the same time that these guys robbed the fucking uh, PX. So naturally, it's a big case. It's a base, Air Force, security, and all that shit. So they checked everything. They checked all people who would may work their names. They come up with Fungie's name. They call Fungie in. What were you doing? He said, I assure you, and no, I haven't been doing this in years. I retired. I'm... I'm at that time, 1967, he was 68 years old. Then I guess they checked out what he said that he does pick up garbage for the government. He comes on base, gets garbage, comes with his truck, comes off the base, and they let him go. With speculation and what they were told, that's probably how my name came up because Fuzzy Doe came up, and he Fuzzy had nothing to do with that. The case it never, it was never tried. That Fuzzy Doe was one of the best safe guys in his era. He was my father's age. Yeah, at that time when this happened, he he did. He was legit. He had enough. He was sixty-eight years old. He didn't want to go back to the fucking can. Got himself a dump truck. He must have made a score somewhere. He needs to haul garbage off the grid. This is all according to my FBI reports. Because I don't know what the fuck uh, Fungi was doing back in the day after his era. Because he's old enough to be my father. When he was a young man, you know, I, I didn't ever want any scores on him. But he had a rep. As I grew up, I knew everybody talked about Fungi.
0: It's time to take a break. It's nothing personal. It's strictly business.
1: Support for this podcast is brought to you by Northeastern Roofing and Construction. Based out of Utica, New York, they specialize in residential and commercial roofing. Call them at 315-534-6118 for an estimate or visit their website at northeasternroofs.com. You can also find them on Facebook. Coming soon, Crash's Metal Recovery, located at 2435 State Route 5, Utica, New York. Crash is back and always providing cash for your scrap. Performing services on various forms of scrap metal that are ferrous and non-ferrous. Crash's Metal Recovery, coming soon. Locally owned and operated by the Givanozzo family. Now back
0: to Unbreakable, the Donato Danny Nappy story. While doing his first stint in prison, Danny would experience a prison riot in Auburn Correctional Facility in November of 1970. He only had 30 days left of his sentence. Here is his account.
2: 1970, there was a riot. November 4th, right around Election Day. I think it was Election Day. A year later, 1971, is when Attica went off. A lot of those troublemakers in Auburn, they shipped the Attica in 1970. Figured it, uh, it won't happen again. The way I remember that riot is this. It was supposed to be the black. It was supposed to be a race riot. So we remember the morning it was going to happen. There was maybe, a, I'm going to mention guys' names now, all right? These are notorious guys that you may have heard of. One of the guys was Joe Sullivan, Joe Marco Tedesco, Joe Gallo, a few others. There was maybe 10 of us that were against this wall, this chain league fence. We come out strapped. Strapped means... Anything that you put on your chest, if you get a hold of a telephone book or a plastic square mirror, anything to a shank, come out. And step means to come out with your shit, because we thought it was going to be a race riot. They were building something inside of the prison. They were doing a little construction work. Well, it was fenced off by Bob wire, not Bob wire, chain friends, chain link fence, right? So we stood there. Down at the other end, there was Muslims. They were making formations. All the Muslims had the leader there. One Muslim came out of the fucking mess hall with a pillowcase full of shanks. At that time, they allowed us to have knives in the mess hall. You can have a knife and a fork. And he went up and down the the ranks. This is is like combat, I'm telling you what happened here. And they're passing out these fucking shanks. Now we're at the ring. They turn around. Formation, they start running towards us and all. Okay, let's go. They get about from here to that fucking wall away from us, and the leader goes like this No, 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 because he's seen us and they had shit too. This ain't ain't against us, against you. This is us against the administration. When I looked on this side and I looked on that side, there's maybe three of us left Joe Galloway was there, uh, Marco Tedesco, Joe Sullivan. We were the only ones left. We looked at a door. I'll never forget this in my whole life. This door going into the block from the yard into the block. You know how a door is this wide? Well, inmates were trying to run into that door. They couldn't squeeze in through to get in there fast enough, like a stampede. And they were turning around. I'll never forget the looks on their face. They were scared to death. They were supposed to be out there to fucking. That's when this shit happened. They took four guards, hostages. From the, from the construction vehicles, they've siphoned gas. They put these cars, tied them up in chairs, in blankets, and they're going to light them on fire with this fucking glass. They took off all the blocks that they could. I think they took three blocks off. The COs were running back in the catwalk and locking themselves in the catwalks. They were saying, please, I got a family home. This and have not. This is what we hear. I didn't have nothing to do with that thing. I had 30 days to go home. I wanted to go home. Now, they wanted, they took off some blocks. This is their mentality, what they did. They hurt some cops really bad. That's how Joe Gallo, this Joe Gallo was a gangster from New York City. I don't know if you know him. This inmate grabbed a a cop's baton, and he hit this cop from down here in the back of the fucking head, and the cop went down. Wow, what a shot. So fucking hard, he broke the fucking baton. Joe Gallo and Marco Tedesco see this as an out. They take this cop and they drag him up the fucking sick hall. They saved his life. For that, when this was all over, they send Joe Gallo down to Sing Sing. They give him his good time back because he lost his good time in fights and shit that he had. They removed the mold on his face that he had for life. And they let him go. Marco, they didn't give shit. They didn't give Marco nothing. They ended up doing his bit. I don't know why. After they, after they got control of the blacks, the first they oh, they wanted the governor to come down. The governor refused to come down. Here's the cops and horses and everything. They were going to fucking put the gas on and all that. So, shit. There was machine guns on top of the roof. There was tear gas. They were shooting tear gas into the fucking yard. Some of the canisters, they, they were through. This was in November. So they throw the coat over the canisters till they could get it and throw it back up at the fucking... So everybody's burning with that shit. And here's what they do. He wouldn't even send Rockefeller. He wouldn't even send his uh, lieutenant governor to prison. So I ain't giving it to nobody. Here's what they do. There's a fucking riot. They go in the mess hall. Back in the day when they cooked spaghetti or soups or pot, they had a big, big vats, big vats, 'cause they cook for uh, and um, they cooked spaghetti in that. So they think, well, we're gonna make instant hooch. And what they got is pineapple juice, grapefruit juice, fruit cocktail. And they threw it in this big fucking vat and they turned it on and they it, and threw fucking yeast in there, figuring it's gonna ferment and they're gonna make hooch. So they fucked up the whole mess all doing that. Now what they did, especially in my block, they went back in there. They used to have these drug boxes where they keep your medication, and every time you need medication, you go to the cop, you give it to your watch and take it, okay? They broke them drug boxes off, figuring they can get high. So from the hooch and the, the drugs, whatever they did, they're trying to get high. The third thing is they did out of this fucking, they lined up all the fags, and they were fucking fags. I mean raping them, and that's what they did in that riot. Now here's the top of it all. Now everybody agreed. There's a lot of guys that weren't involved in this. They didn't want to be involved in this. But during the riot, this is the the sad part of it. If you were ever in a the way, they called in three, four hundred maybe yes, uh, state troopers are outside while this is going on. They're ready to come in, and when they did come in, they had these brand new axe handles, and they formed a, a line coming towards you. And anything in their fucking way, they are just fucking cracking. I mean, fucking cracking. Cracking, we thought that, but Attica was worse than that. Tell everybody locked in their cell. Now you're locked in your cell. Each individual, they had a crews of cops coming in there. Come in your cell and wrecked every fucking thing. Then you're locked up. Now, they destroyed the fucking mess hall, so they couldn't cook in the mess hall. So two times a day, the Red Salvation Army, the Red Cross would come in. They had trays already made up, maybe cereal with milk and uh, peanut butter. That's all you had. They weren't going to cook. They couldn't cook. They had to give you that kind of shit, and that's all you ate. And you were starving. After you ate that, you were still fucking starving. Starving to the extent where they had the normal old light bulbs in the back of the cell for your light. They didn't have floor Did I actually think you crushed the fucking light bulb and eat it. That's how fucking hungry I was. So we were locked down for maybe two or three weeks and one locked down, nobody was out, you're in. Now, when they hit the doors to let us out, I look at him, holy shit, Matt. (laughs) He lost maybe 20 pounds, I might have lost 20 fucking pounds. Holy shit. (laughs) You don't even
1: recognize the guy.
2: (laughs) And then I went home from there.
1: After he was
0: released in 1971, he had a taste for money and his involvement continued to rise nap, you would earn a name as a skilled safe guy.
2: Then I met certain guys, and they took me on burglaries. They were safe guys. Then I I went on scores, safes, houses, whatever I did. I did. Started making a lot of money back there. All right, all the scores I did, I blew. Had parties, you know, like I said, Miami, Vegas, wherever I went, New York City. I used to like to go out of town because, again, nobody ever saw me flash money. I could tell you scores you wouldn't fucking believe, but I don't know if I should talk to them. These are, you know, these are sacred fucking scores. We used to do night deposit boxes. That's people own don't know. Not night deposit boxes. Uh, night drop-offs. On the side of a bank, you got a business at the end of the night. You put a thing in a bag. You have a key to this door on the side of a bank. You drop it in the slot, lock it, and that goes into a safe inside. We did a few of those around. You get a looks like a crow bottle. Look, you see him in the, in the store. Any, any, any door is easy to get one of them things. Stick it in the crack there, boom, they will go. And that's why he had to do it fast, because say a roving patrol just checks the building. And uh, we blew the safes. We used to know how to make nitroglycerin. First of all, we had a uh, we had an alarm guy that would come in. That was his job alone, just to reverse the alarm on the bank. And we would wait a a long weekend, uh, whereas you have Monday as a a holiday. And so that was a purpose for The businesses were still open and they were depositing and depositing over the long weekend. There would be more money in the safe when we went and got it. There was one of the crew that knew how to take hand lotion, creamed hand lotion, with a chemical, and rinse that with a, he had a big, big glass uh, bowl like And he put the chemical in with the hand lotion and he'd rinse it, and rinse it, and rinse it, and rinse it. I went to one session over some creek outside of Utica somewhere. And when he put that stuff in the bowl, the bowl started smoking. He had to be real, he could have killed himself. So he got the nitroglycerin. You only need a little bit, maybe about eight ounces, six ounces. And we used to get a a tube, maybe a round tube, about an inch in, in diameter. And maybe... A foot long, foot and a half long. We put the nitroglycerin in the tube. But before that we made a firing cap. And that firing cap would be the powder part of the cap of a twenty-two bullet. We pulled a bullet out, and put two wires inside that cap and squeeze it together. Now we got that set. You go into the the alarm was reversed, you go into the bank with an extension cord and a hose. Most of the banks inside, what they call keysters it's a round door safe. They call it a keysters, the old days. You have a burning bar with a tank, a small tank of pure oxygen, and you get the burning bar, and you would just cut a hole right in the top of the safe on the seam of the safe, cut the hole. After you got that cut, a hole in, they had this uh, body stuff called bondo. It was good for dents on cars. Make sure it would dry fast. So we bondled the whole crack of the door, except for the hole. The whole crack, and it would dry fast. Now that's set. You have the tube with a cork on it, and in that cork, you had the firing cap, which is a 22. You put that down into the hole, into the safe. After you had the hole in the bondo, that's what the bondo was for. You get the hose, and you fill the safe up with water in that hose, that hole, and... uh, then you put your tube in, you bundle that a little bit, okay. The two wires coming out of the cork that I said it was for the firing cap were connected to us an extension cord, a long extension cord. So then you run the extension cord to the furthest part from the safe, you plug it in, any plug that was in there, and a boom, And those uh, doors used to come up. The water helped not burn the money, and the water kept the exposure on, believe it or not. We did the same thing in the bank in Florida stood in the bank the whole fucking weekend and we come across scores and in that bank we didn't get the vault we got all the safety people picture miami rich rich motherfuckers they put their shit in safety deposit boxes people that couldn't pay taxes they put cash in it all weekend safety deposit boxes they were easy you didn't have to burn them over you know the safety you got one (laughs) (laughs) a lot a lot of fucking money There were times we did joints near Barge Canal and the fucking, we got in a rumble. A rumble in burglary talk means the cops come in on us. There's no fucking place to go except the Barge Canal. We got away. Would you do it or go to fucking can? Say we're in here and and somebody called the cops and said, hey, they're burglarizing this guy's place. Troopers, sheriffs, cops, they come in on you. You know, they sneak in on you. Figured they're gonna catch you inside. They call it a rumble. Then you have to fucking take off. Wherever it took you through woods, try to call us a barge, now we're bold. we were blowing fucking supermarket safes up and everything. And back in the day too, we had an alarm guy that would come in. It was a specialty. Wouldn't tell nobody reverse the alarms. In other words, if the alarms on now, they had ADT, guy would watch the alarm system all night long. And if he see sees something blinking on this alarm, well, that's pro Hannaford's on Mohawk Street. But when you reverse the alarm, even though it's hot, it wouldn't show on this guy watching. It would show normal. And we had guys come in. We had one or two guys. That, that's all they came in for is the do the and Then
0: they got, they got a piece of it, you know? From Disruption Network, this is Unbreakable, the Donato, Danny Nappy story. Let's talk about organized crime. Tune into the next episode where we dive into the criminal mind of an up-and-coming wise guy. From Disruption Network, this is Unbreakable. The Donato, Danny Nappy story. Executive Producers, Anthony Z. Donaldson and Danny Nappy Jr. Legal Advice, Christopher Jude Pelley and David Longaretta. Consultants, Todd Williams, Gabriel Altamuro, J. Anthony Stucci and JGK Associates. Artwork, Jerry Bernardo. Social Media Marketing, Christy Schleider. All Rights Reserved Disruption Network 2021.